everything we know about what a patient decides to do could be wrong. I want you to picture in your mind a child catching a baseball. She's got her mitt out, she's got her hat on, and she's about to catch it from, in this case, her father. Her father throws the ball and she catches it. You can picture that. The ball goes straight from the father, slight arc, to the daughter, caught in the mitt. Everything changes once you get on a merry-go-round. So put the daughter in the merry-go-round, put the father on the merry-go-round, and have them toss the ball. What happens then? Does the ball go straight from the father to the mitt of the daughter? No, it it seems to swerve off to the side if you're on the merry-go-round. And it never gets from the father to the daughter at all. It just goes the wrong way. And what we'll hear today is that all of what we understand about how a physician gets a drug to a patient is like that father and daughter on that merry-go-round. You think that there's a toss that makes sense from one to the other, but without knowing the context of the merry-go-round, it never happens. It never gets there. And that's what we're talking about today on the Inventive Health Podcast. We'll be talking social centricity. Patient decisions do not happen in a vacuum. We'll have Kathleen Starr talking about social centricity next. Kathleen, welcome to the Inventive Health Podcast. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Can you tell me just what your title is and something about what you do here at Inventive Health? I'm Managing Director of Behavioral Insights Group, which is a communication practice. And really what we do is focus on turning marketing efforts into behavior change opportunities for companies. I'm a behavioral scientist by training. I have a doctorate in health psychology and behavioral medicine and really have spent my whole career studying human behavior in the context of people managing serious health conditions and really kind of bringing those insights into helping life sciences companies all throughout the product lifestyle, bringing those insights into either clinical trial protocol development, all the way through marketing efforts to try to educate patients, as well as keeping them adherent to therapy. So we're talking about behavior of patients, not behavior of physicians or behavior of of, uh, pharmacists or other people within the patient journey. Yep, exactly. You have a paper out here recently called Advancing Beyond Patient Centricity. Why would we want to advance beyond patient centricity? Aren't we supposed to be focused on the patients? Yes, we are. And I've been in this industry for a long time, and I appreciate the efforts that the life science industry has been focusing on the patient. My point is that we need to think about not just an individual patient and the individual patient's motivation to ask their doctor for a medication or to stay on therapy, but we need to broaden that and really think about and try to influence all the different things that are really impacting their decisions and their ability to act on those decisions. And so we call it social centricity because so much of what happens in people's day-to-day life and the, the social context they live, the family they live, they, how they work, that really helps drive a lot of their decisions, how they think about their disease, how do they think about their treatment. And then ultimately, even if they're really interested in and wanting to be adherent to their therapy, their real ability to be able to do so. So I, I feel like 
we're there, we're starting to talk about it, but what we need to do is think about the wider context. So give me some insights into that wider context. This is not something that you're just speculating on. You've watched patients, you've followed patients along in their social lives. Right, right. Exactly, exactly. So one thing is, you know, the the behavioral science literature for the last five to six decades has really pointed out that there's a lot of influences, right, that shapes our behavior. So what we wanted to do is say, well, that's really interesting. That shapes human behavior, you know, like the people around us, societal norms shape our behavior, but what does that really mean for people who are trying to either stay healthy or manage a serious condition? How does life intersect with their ability to do that? And so what we did is we actually conducted a study and followed 30 families for two solid years to really see how that intersection of real life and people's efforts to maintain their health or to manage a chronic condition, how those intersected um, to really give us a flavor for what's really driving behavior. We had families um, across the United States. We had families in Portland, Kansas City, Boston, and Shreveport, Louisiana, because we really wanted kind of a geographic mix, thinking that where you live may impact how you engage in health and health care. And then how can we then use that, right, when we go to approach patients, when we're trying to educate them or we're trying to get them to be more adherent? So let's cut to the chase. If you're a pharma company and you've gotten a fairly good idea of what your patient is like, what's different once we see what their whole behavior is? You followed these 30 families for two years. What did you find out? Well, some of the things that I we discovered was just how important the role of the family is. The family is the most powerful social group we belong to. And in my experience, brand managers, people that are really product focused think, oh, I have a patient who has diabetes and they must be thinking about their diabetes all the time. And there's this linear journey and, you know, they'll get the medication, then they'll take the medication. Well, in reality, all that is happening in the context of some, that patient actually being a mother or a father or also maybe caring for an adult parent. So they have a lot of what's going on around them that's influencing their decisions. And what we found was that a lot of who's around the person and the needs of the family overall, a lot of times trump those individual decisions. What do we do about that? I mean, we know that families matter. So what? Like, what do we do? A couple things. Well, one is if we're thinking about how to talk with a patient, right, and how to kind of help them stay motivated that, you know, yeah, you got to kind of, you got to focus on yourself too, and that's okay, right? You can focus on your own condition. One is we need to talk to them within the context of the roles that they play in those families. Our social roles mean a lot more to us than the role of patient. So talking to people in the context of, oh, what does this condition mean to you as a father, your role as a father or your role as a mother or your role as a volunteer, that gives it a lot more context and a lot more meaning than, oh, it's just about you and your condition or your diabetes, for example. Another thought would be also helping 
caregivers or that family unit, right? So I kind of describe the family unit as being kind of a negative influence on healthy behavior. But quite honestly, it can be a really positive. Well, because they can kind of get in the way, the priorities, you know, person is more likely to be more attentive to their children than they are to their own health needs, for example. Mm. But what we can do, though, is if we can also use those family members, those caregivers, I'll use that kind of in a loose term, but use the family as levers to help motivate the patient, help support their efforts to maybe stay on therapy. So it's really interesting because we rarely do that. We think about, oh, this initiative and this patient education needs to go out just to the patient. Well, what can the what can the family be doing to support the patient? What does the family need to know and how to be supportive and help the patient along that clinical journey? Another thing that we definitely saw is just like the role of finances, right? So again, we tend to think of, oh, a $10 copay, that doesn't sound like a lot of money, but it's really about the broader system and the context that that falls into is how is it impacting the overall family's budget, right? So understanding maybe more household out-of-pocket costs and the impact versus just thinking that it's just one transaction. It's actually families are making decisions based on their overall household expenditure on healthcare. I'm trying to figure out what we're supposed to do about that as manufacturers or ones advising manufacturers. Clearly, talking to or educating the other family members makes a lot of sense. Knowing that their budget is impacted by a particular $10 copay versus not knowing the context of it, what do we do differently though? Well, one is if we could use, if we from an analytic standpoint, right, if we could actually get a sense of our target population and get a better sense of if there's a lot of comorbidities associated, what would that look like? What would that bigger, broader perspective and putting that into context of what it really is going to take for someone to be able to make those decisions and not have to make those trade-offs? Because we, we can get that data. Yeah, we can also get the data of just patient copay sensitivity for drug A versus drug B. We, we know that it's hard for some patients. We see it just reflected. A $10 copay has a lower utilization than a $5 copay. But does it really matter that we understand the why of that? I, I'm struggling with that, Kathleen. So just help me out here. Why does it matter that we understand why? Why not just buy them down by 5 bucks and not worry about it? Well, because is that the most efficient thing that we can do? Because if we don't understand the why and what's really driving that, is that $5 that the manufacturer is going to put towards that, is that going to actually make a dent? I think that we also have an obligation to help our clients best. There's limited resources to help patients. So how is the best way that they should be putting their money to use? That's a good point. And as we think about the limited resources, how does a manufacturer decide this is one where I need to understand the social centricity. And this other drug, I might not need to care that much about it, or I might not need to know. Or do you just need to know every time? No, I, I think that's a great question because, again, I feel like you don't always have to shoot an ant with a cannon, you know? <laughs> again, yeah. it's nice to have. It's like kind of trying to decide when it's nice to have versus when it's mandatory. So as a behavioral scientist, things that I would say it would be mandatory is, one, if it really is a long, complicated clinical pathway for the patient, 
there's going to be lots of bumps in the road there. So I think that that would be an important reason to really understand because the social influences could vary over time. The family could be really supportive at the beginning, but then there's a job change or there's other things that happen. We just need to understand what those influences are that are going to derail people over the long run. I think that that's important. The other thing is for our clients who have really costly medications and there's a really high lifetime value for the patients, really thinking about the long term and are there other kind of external partnerships Potentially, maybe the life science company can't meet all of these demands, but do they partner up? Do they partner up with a specialty pharmacy to help support the patient? Are there other things that they could do that make sense from a business perspective, but then they can help share some of that responsibility in that long haul? What are the things that you think that manufacturers would be surprised are the barriers that are faced by these patients once we consider them in their social centricity? What are things that pharmaceutical manufacturers should be seeking to overcome that no one thinks about? I think that one of the things that I think that they would be surprised to learn is in the context of the healthcare system, just how many competing and conflicting messages there are for the patient. It is where you have so many people and so many voices advising the patient right now. So you have employers. You may even have school systems telling parents what medication, we saw that, what medications their kid with ADHD should be on. So I think that just understand that the the source of information, although patients want it to be from a trusted source like their doctor, it's not necessarily the only voice they're hearing, and it's confusing, and it's kind of causing a catatonic state where patients don't know what to do. What do we do about that? What do we do about that? Well, one is I think that understanding this ecosystem, you know, if you're asking me to tell you what's going on with this patient's behavior, I need to understand all the messages about this treatment, about their condition that's surrounding the patient. Because you need to understand, is there any unintended consequences of what else they're hearing? And then what can we do to, once we know that, are there barriers in those other messages? And then what do we need to do to either counteract them or consolidate them into something more coherent? So again, consolidate that, make it into terms that is relevant to patients. Physicians talk in terms of, you know, lab results and percentages. That's not what brings value to to patients. In fact, I was just having a conversation about POSI scores. And it's like, well, patients may be educated on POSI scores. I said, well, that's not going to matter to them. What matters to them is, is my skin clear or not? So what is setting that expectation of, oh, you should get a POSI score of 60 or 70 or 80, that's not going to mean anything. It's, okay, how satisfied are you? What are your pain points as far as where that lesion is or that plaque is, having a conversation about how it matters to them and setting those expectations goes a long way. Are there physical barriers outside of the kind of conversational barriers that we're talking about? Physical barriers, people that are unable to get to the pharmacy or other barriers that could be, but are not generally overcome by manufacturers and the kind of assistance they provide. 
Oh, absolutely. That's another thing that I think that manufacturers, thinking about all the money that they're spending trying to educate patients and also thinking there's really some top-down barriers that, again, it's not necessarily in their preview, but like you said, access the system itself and how many times, I mean, we witnessed how many times people would get bounced from specialists back to PCP and the, the medical record didn't follow and and how confusing that is. Access, like you said, to transportation. Access to healthy uh, food, for example. Because I think what happens is in the life sciences, sometimes we think that as a patient's had more willpower to do something, they would get on their therapy, they would do, and I hear this all the time, they would do what they were told and they would just keep doing it. Well, there's other influences there. You're right. And then to understand and segment those, again, if that's within our target populations, then are there different partnerships? Are there something else? Don't expect life sciences to solve all those problems. But you're starting to see more and more companies trying to form partnerships, like with advocacy, to actually break down some of those access barriers. If you could wave a wand, if you're a manufacturer and you could fix something, what would you fix on these barriers? Is there something that you recommend that the manufacturer really does overcome? I'm thinking about things like providing the ride to get to the pharmacy, but is it a telephone? What is it that they can actually do? I would say probably get on the same page on the treatment recommendations with all parties. What is, the, what is that clear path of treatment for the patient? And explaining that in one consistent fashion. So they're hearing it from the physician. They're hearing it from the life sciences company the, in the education materials. They're hearing it from their insurance provider. Same thing. Hmm. But they have competing desires on what they want you to take, right? Exactly. You said, you said magic wand. Okay. I get it. That, that's true. Fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> okay. You said magic wand. I get, I get all those yeah, the competing stakeholder kind of thing. But the point of this whole social centricity is, to your point, going back to the beginning, you said, you know, but we, we talk about the patient all the time. That's great. And you know what? We've done a lot of really good things. We've educated people a lot. There's a lot more awareness, right? But we've really focused it in on acquisition. And we focused it on awareness and getting them to ask their physician. Then you know there's a big drop off before they even pick it up. But then after that, what we aren't thinking about and we aren't focusing on is that longer-term behavior change as far as what can we do to help and support patients through every moment and every transaction that they need, every time they take the medication, every time they have to refill the medication over time. I think that just focusing on that patient and getting them motivated, aware, really eager, motivated in a moment of time and getting them educated on that, we've done good. But if we want to really promote sustained behavior change, I think that it's that social centricity point of view. We've got to look at the bigger context. Before we go, just a, an overall question. Why do patients make decisions to use a drug when they use a drug? That's a great question. That's a great question. I don't know if I have one answer to that. If I had to boil it down, is because they believe that it's going to, at least in a moment of time, doesn't mean the belief is sustainable, but at that moment in time, they believe that it will meet some expectation of theirs. We do things where goal-directed humans are. So we do something unless it's an automatic behavior, 
and taking a medication wouldn't be when you're just starting. We do it because we think it's going to get us something. Now, the key here is we don't know what those goals are. We can tell them what the, you know, the physician may say, the goal is to reduce your A1C from 9 to 7. Is that really kind of internalized what the goal is? No, probably not. It may be, I want to have my physician quit threatening putting me on insulin. It could be, I want to show my family that I am actually doing something for my health. I'm interested in why people make decisions. Do people for pharmaceuticals make the decision because they're hoping to be something good and positive, or are they mostly seeking to avoid something bad? It depends on the therapeutic area. It depends on the condition. So if you're talking about, I have a serious cancer, it's, I'm hoping for the best outcome, right? I want to live longer. For other conditions, it, it can be mixed. It can depend on where they are. And it's interesting because trying to prevent something bad, that's a really hard motivation to sustain. And we see that all mm -hmm. the time, like in asthma for taking maintenance medications. You get somebody stable and then, you know, they're like, I feel pretty good. You know, I haven't had an asthma attack. What, what do they do? Stop taking their medication, right? We know that. So prevention of something bad happening, it doesn't have the same longevity. You have to keep fueling that motivation. Easier to put everything in a positive light? From a human behavior standpoint, it can be important if you can find out what that gain is, what that positive light is. But when you're talking about longer-term adherence to medication, it can be more complicated where if it's something that's silent, you know, I don't have any instant feedback that I'm off my medication and I'm not as aware of the negative consequences versus if I am more aware. But typically, I would say getting on therapy, it's for, I would say, again, I want something better than I have now. You followed 30 families across the United States for two years. What, Kathleen, surprised you? What did you change in terms of how you thought about how patients made decisions? Great question, because, again, I've been studying human behavior for, you know, my whole career in intersection of medical conditions and health and human behavior. I was surprised to see firsthand just how much is coming at the patient and those conflicting messages. Seeing it firsthand was amazing. It really was so eye-opening. It really took it from, yeah, I know the insurance companies tell them this, and, but just seeing it in a day-to-day -day when a person needs to make a decision about what to do next and, that, and just seeing them stuck in a conflict of competing messages, I think is really, was really powerful for me. The other thing I would say is just how difficult it is to really stay healthy and, and stay engaged in healthy behavior as Americans. We have families in Portland, geographically in different places. We wanted to get families that were kind of more health conscious. Even the most motivated families or participants that were like, yeah, I know, and it could be because I'm trying to avoid you know, high blood pressure medicine or whatever. I need to eat right. And just how hard that is constantly having to avoid the temptations all around them, the temptations to work themselves to death because we're a productive-oriented society and not make time to exercise, the temptations all around with food. I mean, if you look just day to day, just how 
much that infiltrates our absolute day-to-day lives on a really hour-by-hour basis, it's amazing. And so it's always avoiding. It's avoiding, avoiding, avoiding. And what we know about human behavior is it's very hard to avoid in the long term. It's, it's exhausting. It feels like work. And so people fall off. People are always falling off. But what's interesting to me was the importance of how quickly people get back in track. That's where we should be focusing on. People aren't going to be perfect. They're going to fall off track. They're going to fall off their medication. They're going to fall off their diet regimen. You know, they go on vacation. But what are we doing to help them get on back on track really quickly? Oh, that's really interesting. We even think about adherence as something where we're keeping them on drug. I don't think I've heard the re-engagement message often. Oh, I always say we need to redefine adherence to talk about resilience. What we want to do is make sure that off therapy is, is from a behavioral standpoint, right, behavioral psychology, that they fall off therapy. What you want to do is make sure that doesn't become an ingrained habit. Get them back on as quick as you can. One, acknowledge it. Don't make them feel bad. It happens, right? Life happens. That's the whole thing. There's tons of things in the social context that is going to derail people. I think how we talk about that and the empathy we use and then what kind of tools can we do to get people back on track. One of my big pet peeves is if I see on a website any more about we're going to help you stay motivated. That sounds a really negative message that somehow I'm defective in my motivation, that I don't have enough willpower. Like I want to be healthy. I want my asthma to be under control. That's much more of expecting adherence to be this perfectly linear journey, and it's not. One more question, and just stop me if it's too personal. Have you changed anything in your own behavior because you've watched these 30 families for two years? Oh, that's a great question. I think I'm a lot more sensitive about the role of the society influences on how we eat. I'm a lot more conscious about that. And being a lot more protective with my kids in terms of taking a lot more control, not letting them dictate what we eat. It's very easy as a parent to let that happen, and we saw that happen in our families. Also, I think the other part of it is as much empathy as I had for these families about trying to get back on track. I talked about resilience, having that same thing. It's like, okay, you aren't perfect. That's okay. Let's focus on getting back on track. What are we going to do tomorrow? Kathleen Starr, PhD, thanks so much for being on the Inventive Health Podcast. Thanks for having me. That's all for today's Inventive Health Podcast. My name is Jeff Stewart. Thank you for listening. If you have questions, comments, suggestions, or if you just want to talk through a particular challenge or issue that you have at your pharmaceutical company, you may email me at podcast at inventivehealth.com. We're consultants. That's what we do. You don't always have to shoot an ant with a cannon, you know? (laughs)